Today our message is entitled, God with us, who cares? God with us, who cares? It's a very fascinating thing for me to think about as I I've been studying this week. Matthew uh, chapter 1 is where I'd like to start with you this morning. Matthew chapter 1, from verse 18. It says, The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So Matthew's words here in this introduction of the of what we call the Christmas story is where Matthew in in his inspired recollection and his inspired memory and knowledge of the prophet Isaiah he he knew and he knew to tell us that Isaiah had told Israel of a sign and you'll just note there at verse uh, 22 that we just read, Matthew is reminding you and, and really the Jewish audience, I'm just helping you try to notice what, what the Jewish audience would have noticed or what, what they should have been paying attention to. All this was done that might be fulfilled, Matthew says. Fulfillment is this prophetic warning or this, this prophetic uh, announcement that Matthew repeats often in his book. And he's reminding you that the life of the Lord Jesus, the, the miracles, the preaching, the activities that were around his life, a Jew should have known to expect these things when the Messiah came. And so he writes, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then there's this verse here. 
through the prophets saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. A moment ago I told you we were titling the message, God with us, who cares? Who should care? Who does actually care? Is, is kind of where I want you to start thinking about this. God with us is how you should interpret the word Emmanuel. And so when Isaiah said this, when he says they will bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, the word Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. And so Matthew tells us about this word spoken by Isaiah. Isaiah speaks from a kingdom that compared to where Matthew is, is just truly ancient. Prior or before Matthew in time, more than 700 years is Isaiah. So think about Matthew recollecting this event for him was already 700 years in the history. Where was America 700 years in our history? Where were we? <laughs> I know. Isn't, I mean, that's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? That's how far back we're going. For As Matthew is recollecting this and saying this, it really, for him, was very old history. goes way back. And so I'm going to, in a, in, a, in a brotherly fashion, as we really start getting into this uh, passage here, I want to prick your conscience. I want to... I want to ask you, do you understand why Isaiah wrote these words? Why did Isaiah say this phrase that, that Matthew repeats for us? Matthew says, The virgin will be with child and bear a son. They will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Is, is your knowledge of Isaiah even a little bit good enough where you can now get your heart into, Oh, yeah. I remember Isaiah's words to the nation. I know what Isaiah was teaching and warning Israel. I'm afraid we're not. I'm afraid we're in a biblically illiterate age. We don't know our Bibles very well. And so this is why I say I want to tell you as a brother, not as a scolding teacher, but as a brother, these things are here for you. And, and, and I've found some rich things to share with you. And I want to exhort you to labor more diligently in your study of God's Word. We should have been able to be reading Matthew years and years ago and, and catch on to these kinds of things. Who is Isaiah speaking to? And why did the Spirit stir Matthew to repeat these words 700 plus years after the fact? Was, was this saying, Emmanuel, God with us, meant to be a quaint Christmas card for the next few centuries? I mean, is, that's what it has been to me. Emmanuel, God with us. I love the song, you know. But is that what was intended by God and His Spirit in, in bringing these words to us? And so, as, as I am preparing you to... Let, let's think biblically and spiritually about this idea. Emmanuel, God with us. 
to help you begin thinking properly about that, I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, and I'm going to, I'm going to show you what the appearance of Christ causes in people's hearts and minds. And they're all here. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Herod, king. In what town? Where is Herod king? Jerusalem. Okay? He's a big king. This is not no, no little king. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And this is just historic fact here. And they said, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? And we all kind of want to wonder, how did they know about a king of the Jews who is going to be born? And they seem to be pagans or Gentiles. They're not Jews. These foreigners come looking for the one who is born king of the Jews. They're, they're searching for him. They said, we've seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. There's a little bit known about these people that are called the Magi. Historically speaking, we, we, we can find out some things about them. You could research them, and there's a few things you can know about the Magi. There weren't three of them, by the way. Do you know why they say there were three? <laughs> three gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so it kind of makes fun storytelling when, you know, this guy brought one gift and this guy brought another one and this guy brought another one. Three guys. But there were, more likely than not, quite a large caravan of them came with these three gifts. The God with us. Emmanuel had been born to Mary and Joseph. And these ones came, do you, can you, if you guys close your eyes, can you, do you know where Petra is on a map of, of the Middle East? So if you can picture the Mediterranean Sea as you're closing your eyes, there's the Mediterranean Sea. And on the right-hand edge of the Mediterranean Sea is Israel. And over to the right, another w within the next inch in the map that you're looking at is Petra. And that's in Jordan. And Petra is a, uh, a city built in these canyon lands that are kind of below the surface of the desert, if you will. It's a really magnificent structure in Jordan. And most people believe the Magi traveled from there to come and see the Lord Jesus when he was born. And they were uh, astrologers. They, they studied the stars. And they, they, they knew the stars in the sky. And they bring these gifts. So what was it that stirred them? How, how did they come to come and seek for the Lord Jesus? And, and why did they have it in their hearts to honor him with really with great wealth? They brought gifts that were worth a substantial amount of money. The trip for them to leave their country and to come find him wasn't an afternoon drive. It was many days travel for them to come. So they, they sacrificed of their time. They sacrificed of their wealth. So God with us to the Magi created a, an attitude. 
God with us for the Magi created a generosity, a deference, a reverence, right? It, it, it caused something in these Magi that we look at them and we like them because we like and love the baby Jesus and his family. And we see these ones coming and, and it's likely that the riches that they gave to Mary and Joseph actually were a great assistance to them over the next couple of years in their travels and they're providing for their home and their family. They had some of these things that could help them provide for them. It was a, really a wonderful way for God to show us how he provides for his people and cares for his people. So the Magi are a snapshot of Emmanuel, God with us, who cares? Well, interestingly, these, these people, these foreigners really, these Gentiles, they care a lot. They're actually very unique in their, in their love and their devotion and their generosity to the baby king. But look at verse 3 now. So Matthew chapter 2 and verse 3. Let's, let's take another little snapshot here. Herod the king heard about this, about the Magi who had come to see the king of the Jews. And he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. So there's another response. There's another, when we're thinking about Emmanuel, God with us, and the arrival of Jesus, Jerusalem and the king are, are, are anxious about this. Verse 4 says, He had gathered all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. How did Herod know that the king of the Jews and the Magi were coming to see was the Christ? Or why was Herod even suspicious of it? Well, he was a man who knew much of the Jewish tradition. He, he knew the Jews were waiting for the Messiah. Well, what's his interest in this? And you already know the answer to this question. What is Herod's interest in this king Messiah? Well, he sees a threat. He's like, well, I'm the king. We're going to run the show my way and, and, and we're not going to allow any usurpers in on my kingness. So, think about this question again. Emmanuel, God with us, who cares? What, what is Herod's care in this story? What, that when, when I use the word care all by itself, sometimes care is, is hug, nurture, provide for. Sometimes care is intense interest and, and engagement with a situation and what am I going to do to solve it? For Herod, what his caring in this situation isn't love and affection and interest in that way in the king, is it? His care is in this is a problem for me and my throne, my ambitions, my life. So God with us inspires another attitude toward what does it mean to have God with us. This is what I'm challenging you to think about this morning. God with us. What does that do inside your heart and your mind? How does that cause some kind of reaction in your own life? So Herod is an example of one of these kinds of reactions. In verse 5, Matthew 2 verse 5, he hears his answer. They said to him, 
in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And the prophet Micah writes in chapter 5 too, this is where this answer came. These ones knew where the Messiah would be born. I love it that the prophets could tell Herod where to go look. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so as Herod hears of this king, he's even reminded by the prophet Micah that this king that Herod is looking into, this king, Emmanuel, God with us, this king is one who will shepherd my people. The God who would be with us is known that he is a a shepherd, a caregiver, a protector, a defender. And so, does Herod want to seek peace with this king and join this king in this work of the shepherding and the care of God's sheep? Is this Herod's attitude? And no, you know, sarcasm here. He actually would prefer to ignore the child entirely or or make sure the child, the, the new king, can in no way threaten his reign and his rule. Herod finds himself in a situation of needing to destroy the threat. Herod, Herod's care in God with us is, is as antagonistic as it can be. So the God with men, or God with us, is He's a sign. The appearance of the Lord Jesus is a sign in the truest sense of the word. In the biblical sense of the word, the Lord Jesus means something. He is a sign. And so we're going to delve into trying to determine the function of the sign on planet Earth. What is the sign? What is the result of the sign's appearance on planet Earth? Matthew 10:34, really super succinct. Not, not ultimately complete, but Matthew 10:34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. What is the result of the appearance of the sign? Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The Lord Jesus who is God in the flesh. The appearance of God in the flesh divides men from men. He is a divider. He is a huge divider. In the illustration I just gave you, the Magi are drawn to Him in love, adoration, and worship. Right? How is Herod drawn to Him? Complete antagonism murderous antagonism. Herod actually goes to the trouble of having all the children killed in the area of Bethlehem because he hates the king. The division that comes out of a right understanding of who is Emmanuel God with us is either deference and love and adoration and servitude or it is antagonism and it's a fight. It is hatred. The, the Lord Jesus brings a sword. He's revered and he's hated. Let's think about now Isaiah's 
word and the sign. I'm going to take you back into Isaiah's perspective. We're going to look at what Isaiah has revealed. And then I'm going to help you understand this sign. It is what I just said it is. I want to help you understand what I've been explaining through Isaiah's lens. Let's look and see how Isaiah laid this out. The name that we are looking at, Emmanuel, this name that is going to be given to the Lord Jesus comes from Isaiah chapter 7, but we got to start in actually chapter 1. And we're not going to go into massive detail. I would encourage you, you would, you would be edified if you yourself went through and read 1 through 7 a couple times through to try to put the little pieces together. But in Isaiah chapter 1, Israel is charged with many of her sinful and godless characteristics. Israel was a country who had fallen so far away from the Lord that this is what the prophet is there for. He's there to warn them. He's he's there to correct them. If you are there in Isaiah chapter 1, one of the things he accuses them of, this is a really fascinating charge, he says they're almost as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 1. I'm not sure what it is that kept them from being as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't go into any detail. So, in other words, the charge of their sinfulness, the charge of their wickedness is, is you are close to as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom. We should have been like unto Gomorrah. Let me, let me translate that, what that meant. You remember how Abraham was worried that Sodom and Gomorrah would be destroyed? How did he intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. How did he try to stop the Lord from doing it? He said, Lord, what if there's some righteous people there? You wouldn't destroy it if there were 50 righteous people there, right? And God said, I wouldn't destroy it for 50, but then Abraham had a second thought. He's all, what if there's not even 50? (laughs) How about 40? And Abraham and God have this discussion. And in, 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 in His gracious and merciful way, God lowers the bar through this conversation. What we just read here in verse 9 of, of chapter 1 in Isaiah says, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah if God didn't leave us a remnant. What does that mean? It means that there were at least this minimum number that was referred to in Abraham's conversation. In other words, God would have, God would have relented destroying Sodom and Gomorrah if there were just a little number of righteous ones. So, in other words, Israel is still there. Judah is still there. Why? There's a couple of righteous ones. There's, there's a small number of a remnant of people who fear and love the Lord. And so Isaiah makes a reference to this. That's not a praise. If I tell you Californians, you California would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, but God has left you a remnant 
What that should make you feel is we're making it by the skin of our teeth. We are a horrible, rebellious, sinful state. Do you see the picture? So they're, they're hanging on by the skin of their teeth there in chapter 1. God also says, I won't hear their religion. I won't hear their prayers there between uh, verses 10 and 15. He says, when you spread forth your hands in verse 15, which is a, uh, it, 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 it's a posture of prayer and deference, right? He says, when you spread forth your hands in verse 15, I will hide my eyes from you. When you make many prayers, I will not hear your hands are full of blood. The religion of Israel is repulsing to God. Religion isn't the secret to making God happy as we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. Humble, deferential, honest, non-Hippocratic hearts are what God loves. Hearts that will repent is what God loves. People who will leave evil and lying and false religion is what God loves. He tells them to wash He tells them to cleanse. He tells them to put away. That's his words he uses here to to tell them to repent. He tells them to learn. Go and learn how to be godly people. You realize that you and I, in this place in time, in in, in, in the scope of redemption, you and I are in a place where we are learning to leave worldliness and to become godly. Romans 12. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed the renewing of your mind. He tells them here in Isaiah, learn, learn again, be godly people again. And then he says, let us reason, fascinatingly, in uh, chapter 1. Let us reason. You see how humble God is? When when your child of of four or five stamps his foot and he, he refuses to listen to your corrections, how many parents say, well... Sit down and let me reason with you. It's an indication of a very greatly patient, kind, careful parent when they say, let let me reason with you. Let me reason. As God is arguing with them, trying to show them their fallenness. Or in other words, you really, really are this sinful You really, really are horribly offensive in your sinfulness. Let me reason with you. Let me show you. You remember the arguments in Romans chapter 1? You remember all the ways sin is spelled out? Godlessness is spelled out in Romans chapter 1. You would would see things like this. Romans, I'm sorry. Um, Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 6. Jumping ahead. Chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they be replenished from the east and are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they please themselves in the children of strangers. This is one of the accusations against them. It's a very strange accusation, isn't it? You are soothsayers, which means you try to find out your direction. You try to find out the way you should go from a magic person. 
You're, you're seeking your, your local enchanter, your palm reader, your card reader. You're going to get advice from these people. That's offensive to God. You go to God in prayer to find your direction. You go to the priest in those days and you say, bring this request to God for me. We want to ask God for help and direction, but these are like the foreigners and they go to the soothsayers and they are known also for how rich they have become, which is, a, is mentioned in verse 7. The land is full of silver and gold. Now, gold isn't evil and silver isn't evil. The love of gold and the love of silver, of course, is a root of evil, the love of it. And so the implication here is that Israel is in the process of becoming filthy rich through the relationship they have with people who don't fear and love the Lord. So Isaiah is warning the nation. He's saying, this is the nature of your sinfulness. This is what is wrong with you and the way you live right now. Chapter 3, God says that he's going to judge. Listen how he judges in chapter 3. He's going to take away their food and their water and their judges in chapter 3 of Isaiah. You're going to be running out of food, running out of water, running out of your just judges. Think about America right now and justice. Where is justice? You get a phone call from the, the, the sheriff or some corporation on Tuesday and says you're going to be sued because your water got dirty like this or this or that happened. We tremble because we know anything can happen when the justice system in our state or in our country is going to be used against us because somebody wants something that we have. It's not so much about justice in our day and age. And this is something that God is chiding them and correcting them for. They should have been just and right, but they weren't. He's taking away their, their judges. Another thing they do is they do their sin right out in the open. They're flagrant in their practice of sin. This is another thing they're being corrected about. And there's an interesting uh, section here also in how the women begin to display their beauty. In chapter 3, it seems the, the women are excessively decorated. It talks about different things that they're... Um, uh, crescents is, is one of the phrases there, which is the Muslim uh, partial moon that would have been made out of gold. And so the, the women maybe would have that as a necklace or maybe their earrings or such. Chapter 5 goes on to say that God expected them to have been good judges, but oppression is rampant. He expected proper judgment, proper judges, but the oppression continued to increase and he offers three different woes which is kind of a, a word for like this is why you are in extreme trouble he he pronounces woes against drink woes against open sin that is the practicing of your sins in the public they're so shameless that they will do their sinfulness right out in public and then um, the the third woe is calling evil good And then he calls the nations to war at, chapter, at the end of chapter 5. In other words, as the people of Judah are listening to the prophet explain this to them, at the end of 5, they are told, you're going to get mowed 
down by the enemy. The nations are going to come against you. The military of the foreigners is going to come against you. Now what should that make them think? What should their response be to, to God saying these things? It should cause them to fear. It should cause them to want to repent and to seek God's mercy. In chapter 6 is the calling of Isaiah. It speaks about how he becomes a prophet, how he becomes equipped and brought into the ministry. And he's also told that he will make their hearts fat, he will make their ears heavy, and he will close their eyes. Isaiah's ministry is going to be to a, 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 a fat, blind, and deaf people. Fat is, is a way of saying they're, they're, they're just unable to respond in a, in a fit way to God's correction. Isaiah, your preaching is going to be to a a fat-hearted, dull-eyed, and dull-eared people. In other words, they're not going to listen to you, Isaiah. They're not going to listen to you, Isaiah. But you're going to go and preach to them. Okay, that's chapters 1 through 6 in like about a five, six-minute summary. Chapter 7 is where we get into the meat of what we're talking about here. Chapter 7, Ahaz is announced to you and I is the king in Judah. Ahaz is the king. And he's threatened with an alliance. The alliance is made of Pekah and Rezin. Pekah is the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom has its own king, who's another Jew, Pekah. And he's allied himself with a king in Syria, Rezin. Those two kings are going to come together and they're going to come and attack Judah. So here's King Ahaz made aware of this military incursion coming against him. So look at Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, that's where King Ahaz is, saying, Syria is confederated with Ephraim. And his heart was moved in the heart of his people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. So what that means is is that the king and the population of the kingdom in the south, when they hear that these two guys have allied against them to come and war against them, they're they're dreadfully afraid. They're afraid of the, the war that will come against them and how they will be harmed. In verses 3 to 11, God commands and then Isaiah reports to Ahaz. God tells the prophet, Prophet Isaiah, you will speak to Ahaz. Tell Ahaz, don't be afraid. I will not let it come to pass. So Ahaz is given a comforting word. Look at verse 7. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. So this is what Isaiah was supposed to come and say to Ahaz. God says Ephraim, which is kind of like a a code word for the northern kingdom, Ephraim, and Damascus, 
which is a code word for Rezim, this other kingdom, Syria, these Ephraim, this Damascus, they will not triumph over you. So Ahaz should be brought to some kind of relief. Ahaz should go, oh, good. Look at verse 9 with me. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. Okay, Samaria is where the, 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 the throne is in the northern kingdom. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, listen, this is, this is actually an important phrase here. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. In other words, you have to believe this if you are going to be established. And what would that mean? What, what would it mean? What, what would be the opposite of being established? Broken, torn down, sent asunder. Okay, established is, is maintained, made strong, made to stand. You've got to believe if you're going to be established. And then verse 11, look at this. Ask a sign of the Lord. So the prophet is still speaking with the king, and the prophet is telling the king, ask a sign. King Ahaz, you're allowed to ask for a sign that this is what God would do and that God would favor you. Ask a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Or in other words, King Ahaz, you can ask for a sign that takes place somehow in the deeps of the earth, in, in, in any kind of anything you can imagine, or up in the skies and in the heavens. Ask for a sign in the heavens. Ask for a sign, Ahaz, that God will do this thing and spare you. In verses 12 to 14, verses 12 to 14 is his reply. What does Ahaz say to this great promise and this great offer of relief? Ahaz says, I will not ask, and neither will I tempt the Lord. He won't ask for a sign. I'm not going to ask for I, I won't test the Lord, he says. And now read verse 13. He said, Hear now, house of David. Now that's Ahaz's house. House of David there, the kingdom in the south, Judah. Hear now, Judah. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Now, this reply means God's not happy with this reply. You won't ask me for a test. You weary me. You won't engage with me. You won't listen to me. Goes on to say, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I think it's easy on your first read. I think it's easy on the first blush to read verse 12 and go, wow, Ahaz is a humble man. Ahaz is a pious man. He's like, nope, I don't even need a sign, Lord. I am just going to believe you. But he says, I won't ask for a sign. And God's response is unhappy. So you know there's something wrong going on in Ahaz's heart. He's not being humble. Verse 9 and verse 13 help us know what's going on. So 9, 
we read a moment ago, it says, if you will not believe, surely you will not be established. Verse 13 says, then he said, hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? You are wearying God with not being willing to give a sign. What is his problem? What is Ahaz's problem? Well, I'll put it to you shortly. Between verse 9 and verse 13, it is unbelief. He does not believe. He won't believe. Now, why? Why will not Ahaz believe this? He's been told, I'm going to save you. Ask for a sign, any sign. He said, no, I won't ask for a sign. Why? Why is it that he wouldn't ask for a sign? Why is it that he doesn't extend his heart and his reign in belief? What is wrong with Ahaz? What is going on? This is actually a tricky question because this is exactly the dilemma. And therefore, God gives him a sign. God says, I will give you a sign. What is the sign? God with us. The sign is God with us. Fascinating. The peril of not believing is told you and I in verse 9. What is the peril of not believing in verse 9? You won't be established. If you won't believe, you will not be established. Let me tell you what I think is the problem with Ahaz. And I believe it, it, it gets clarified. I believe the passage teaches us that this is what has happened. Believing would mean that the king acknowledges that his reign and his kingdom to this point has been ungodly and needs fixing. In other words, why are they being judged? What has the prophet been saying to his people? Well, you've been sinning like this and like this and like this. Your kingdom is full of all this sin. If he decides he's going to believe God, then he also has to admit with God that all of these things are wrong in his kingdom. Ahaz lets sin be commonplace. Ahaz lets sin be done out in the open. Ahaz lets religious life be full of hypocrisy. He's never taught the people that they're wrong. Now, here's a good cross-reference. 2 Kings chapter 15. I'll read you the reference, but maybe make a note of it so you could look at this too. <clears throat> 2 Kings 15 and 33 is a reference to Ahaz's father. And this is what the kingdom was like under Ahaz's father. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So he was a good king. His father was a good king, except for what? He wouldn't remove the high places. He wouldn't remove the places of false worship that they had. And so under the reign of the next king, that multiplied and that got worse. It got more and more rampant the way of the people of the southern kingdom. 
So in other words, Ahaz has made a concession of these high places along with his father. He didn't get rid of the high places. He wouldn't confront the falseness of the high places. And in Ahaz's reign, he saw an increase of the worldliness and all the falseness that was offensive to the Lord. So when the Lord says, there is a threat to your unbelief, what will happen if you won't believe? You will not be established. What will happen if you won't believe? Your kingdom will not go on. You will not be allowed to continue to reign and be king if you go on in this way. God will preserve a kingdom who believes Him. God will preserve a people who put their faith and hope in Him and and live uprightly before Him. Ahaz, when he says, I won't tempt the Lord, he was really saying, I don't really want to believe. I don't really, I don't want to go down that road. If I say I believe you, then I have to start fixing my kingdom. I have to start opposing all this sin that's been running rampant in my kingdom. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 in Isaiah 7 says, The Lord will bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the kings of Assyria. He's told of the coming destruction and hardness that would come. So let me try to help put these things together so you can see this picture just a little bit more clearly. When the Lord Jesus was born 2,000 years ago and when He came to earth, He's he's a sign. That's why so much prophecy spoke about His appearance. When He appeared, there were many things the people of Israel should know. They should be ready to face and ready to understand when He appears. When He comes, it's a sign that God is building His kingdom. God is redeeming His people. God is sending them their king. And you can stand with the king. You take your stand with the king. You call evil, evil. You call good, good. You do what's right. You speak up for justice in your kingdom. You honor your king. You endure hardship with your king. The conflict with your king. But you enjoy God's presence with you. You see, when when it says Emmanuel, God with us, that's how you and I all endure hardship and conflict. It's how we endure trials. It's how we persevere to the end of the age. God is with us. So we've decided to take our stand with Him. Like the king could have done. Ahaz could have done that. But he didn't want to. He didn't want to take a stand with the king. Luke 2.34 is where Simeon pronounces a blessing on Jesus' family and the Lord Jesus. Luke 2.34 
Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, the child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. How is the child destined for the fall of many? How is the appearance of the Lord Jesus destined for the fall of many? What does that mean? Do you understand what that means? It means when many people meet King Jesus... They reject him. They refuse to stand with him. They will be like Ahaz. Ahaz was offered God's blessing, offered God's protection, offered God's care, and he wouldn't grab it. He wouldn't take it. Why? He didn't want to deal with the conflict in his kingdom. He didn't want to deal with the loss of riches and with the loss of alliances that were making him great in his own mind. When Simeon blesses the family of Jesus and the Lord, and he makes this prophetic statement, he says, the child is destined for the fall and the rising of many. Who is going to fall when God is with us? If God is with us, can some people fall? Absolutely. Because he brings this division. He insists that you are either fully with him and you are going with him, you are trusting him, walking with him, working to please him. You are either that or you are in opposition to him. You have no care about the sin that is running amok around the world or around the the churches as far as that goes. So the name, Emmanuel, God with us, is a prophetic sign. It's a sign to show you and I that God's fulfillment of the prophecy that was made to Ahaz was fulfilled. 700 years later, Emmanuel comes. God with us comes. And God keeps his promise. Does Ahaz know about the, 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 the birth of Jesus? Well, Ahaz was gone many years. But the men and women of Israel know God kept his promise. Here is the one born, Emmanuel. Here is God with us. Should we stand with Ahaz? Or should we stand with those who love the God who is with us? This is the nature of the question for a Christian and a person who's listening and trying to understand where they stand before God. Where do you stand? Where do you stand before Him? Do you stand with Him? Are you ready for the end, standing at His side? Are you ready for the end as His servant? Not afraid? Or are you apathetic? Are you unwilling to to put forth your hope and your faith in Christ, in God, the Savior like Ahaz? Ahaz was aloof and he loved the friendliness with the world and he wouldn't fear the Lord. He would not fear the Lord. He would not commit to bringing himself back into the service of the Lord and enjoy God's blessing. So I hope that's a little bit helpful. Um, I'm going to close in a word of prayer. And if uh, you'd like to Stay and join us for lunch. We'd love to have you for lunch this afternoon. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of Emmanuel. And Lord, I pray that our hearts 
would be drawn to the comfort and the care and even the glory of the God who is with us. Oh Lord, cause our hearts to be soft toward you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.